everyone, and welcome to another edition of Tried. You'll like it, the podcast where we take a movie and a book with a common theme and discuss them, argue about them, and go off on silly rants. I'm Joseph Finn. With me are my co-host, Sammy Watts. Hello. And Randy Perry. Hi, everyone. How's everyone today? Cold. Cold? It's definitely finally autumn up here in Canada. Uh, we're starting to get that ourselves. We've got a nice 68 going in Chicago right now. Nice. We're talking about the weather, really? Sure. Okay. I know you're. Was, I know you're in Georgia. There was weather here. Weather happened. <laughs> anyway, before I get to our theme this week, let's discuss anything we've been into lately: movies, TVs, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? Amy. Ah, uh, no, come back to me. I didn't remember I was going to be asked this. Oh, okay, Randy, please. Okay, well, I was going to rave a little bit about Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is the the best new show that we should all be watching right now because. We want it to last for years and years because it's very funny. Um, but I also wanted to just take a couple of seconds and gripe about the last couple of episodes of Breaking Bad because they've just been really annoying me. Okay. Well, if I can, uh, before we get into that, let me just note that I'm totally with you on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I am loving the Barney Miller feel of it. I'm loving the credits for it. I'm loving that this is a good, solid cast. Andy Samberg is dialed back and not so bro-funny as he can be sometimes. And the affection between him and Andre Brower's character is fantastic. And there's an excellent supporting cast as well that are all really already sharply drawn. Yes. Even people I do, I know people are, are really gaga over Chelsea Peretti in her podcast, but for some reason I have never encountered her before, and I'm enjoying her as the kind of civilian of the group. Yes. The one thing I think they can dial back on is the uh, unrequited romance, but maybe that won't be so much of a thing uh, in later episodes. Yes, and I hope we get to see at some point whether or not Andre Brower, whose character is gay, um, I hope we get to see a bit of his personal life, because I'm sure he's got a really interesting uh, story going on there, too. Yes, and I like that we have a plausible villain uh, of a police commissioner. Assistant police commissioner? I forget. Yes. Yes. And I also would like to see more flashbacks, like we got in the pilot episode to the Disco Strangler. That was hilarious. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Were you vaguely disappointed, by the way, that we didn't get to see what happens when you taser a cantaloupe? (laughs) (laughs) I think, yes, I'm sure they'll come up with other interesting uh, things in future episodes for that. But yes, the ratings I don't think are very good right now, so I'm just hoping Fox will give it a chance to uh, find an audience because it's already found its voice. Yes, it's it's so assured that I'm, I'm very impressed that something has come to air that's that's this together already. Agreed. Uh, before we get into the Breaking Bad, let's go back around to Amy, because I know that's going to be a bit of a discussion. Amy, do you have anything for us? Can I talk about my beavers? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Okay. Our, our pre-podcast talk reminded me of a, a mid-90s Nickelodeon show, late-90s Nickelodeon show that I loved, called The Angry Beavers. And... Now that I remembered that it's on Netflix Watch Instant, I think I'm going to have a beaver marathon this weekend. Excellent. Now, you mentioned something before that it originated on Netflix Canada, and Randy, I'm kind of... No, 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 not Netflix Canada, Nickelodeon Canada. Nickelodeon Canada, pardon me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Randy, I'm curious, uh, when did Nickelodeon Canada start up? Do you remember it all? No, I do not. Hmm. Um, That was part of the cable channels I don't really remember paying much attention to, um, especially... 
up until about a decade ago when I would have had much more limited access to cable. Not because Canada doesn't have cable, but because I just was a student and didn't have cable. Of course. Now, see, for me, I was born in 73. Nickelodeon, for me, was the uh, channel that you watched if you wanted to watch a bunch of weird uh, British and Canadian and New Zealand imports. Oh, yeah, because that was where you got to see uh, You Can't Do That on Television. Exactly. The show premiered first in the United States in 1997. Already. And then it, it didn't make it to Canada until 2009 because Canada is 12 years behind. That's what Robin Sparkles teaches us, yes. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And it's just an incredibly funny show. And it, it's... It, may I read some of the plot descriptions <laughs> Please. and titles? Okay. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, so here we go. Okay, so you have these two brothers, Norbert and Daggett, and they're beavers. And let's see, Norb and Dag fight over who will move a Russian spaceship off the roof. Daggett believes he gave birth to a baby mongoose after a huge meal. That one is called Daggy Dearest. So, see? I mean, this is good stuff. Norb and Dag star in a Western episode and face the robotic kid-friendly, so it's clearly a callback to Westworld. Of course. I see Adrian Dag. Barbeau is involved at one point as well. Dag tries to get Nor Norb's toy duck away from him with the help of a mystical creature. Dag and Norb are too tired to sleep. Norbert becomes a bedbiter in his sleep. <laughs> I don't know why, but that one just cracks me up. Norb and Dag work as waiters in an attempt to buy masks. Because if you need a mask, you go get a job as a waiter. Or you could join the raccoons. Daggett so what's the kind of the, I'm assuming it's it's a more irreverent kind of show. Oh yes, it's very it's zany, and it's definitely one of those ones that like the kids can like it for you know the things fall down go boom Hello? aspect, but parents can like a lot of the culture jokes that get put in there. Oh sure. So there you go, Angry Beavers. M one of my favorite episodes is season two, episode one, which is where the beavers are involved in a lot of disco dancing and it has the immortal song classic beaver fever which is always what plays in my head when i hear people talk about justin bieber and bieber fever i'm right back there with some beavers i like the name of their town it's way out of town you guys isn't it it's killing you no i'm i'm enjoying the name of their town way out of town oregon it's not quite as good as uh, as the town um, in uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle that I'm blanking on now. Uh, or Powerpuff, the city of Townsville. <laughs> What's the matter, you? That's it. Uh, I love the city of Townsville, and there's actually a Townville on the way to my parents' house. Oh, that's fantastic! And I always want to pull off and see if the Powerpuff Girls are there. I love that there's a Bond National Park in uh, southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois. We have gotten totally off topic, Joe. We're on You're going to have topic? to take this all back out. Probably. Anywho, no, Randy. In fact, you can take out my entire Beavers thing. You guys didn't laugh enough. I'll put in some laughter. You can... <laughs> here, here, Joe, I'm going to give it for you. You can cut out my Beavers. <laughs> Lord. Uh... I'll put in the stuff from the pre-show about the dancing Beavers. Anyway. Anywho. <laughs> now, Randy, you had some issues with the last couple of Breaking Bads. I know particularly with Ozymandias. Now, yeah. I know your issue is not probably mine, which is uh, I'm still waiting for the finale when Marie becomes the avenging angel of death and mows down Walt in a fury of gunfire. 
Because she's the last no, innocent I want character. Her to eviscerate him with a knife. I think she's got to get up in there close, and then like put the blood on her, you know, streak the blood on her cheeks like Tammy Faye blush. <laughs> like Tammy Faye blush. Like Tammy Faye Baker in her blush. Yep. Mm-hmm. Episode title. Anyway. So, Brandy, why don't you start with uh, what was bothering you with Ozymandias and uh, the Granite State? Yeah, so just we are recording this before uh, the finale, uh, Felina, airs on Sunday night. But people probably won't be hearing it until after the finale airs. Right, this will go up on probably Monday. Yes. Um, And I was... Well, first of all, both of you have done a remarkable job in actually catching up on the series. Joe, I know you've kind of watched the whole thing in the last, what, like two months or something? About a month, really. Wow. And I know, Amy, you had been watching, you had, hadn't been that far behind, but you recently did get caught up on all of season five. Right? I watched all of season five in about a week. Nice. Well, I, I say this as someone who tuned into the pilot when it aired in 2008 and had been kind of advocating for the series ever since then that I I have basically been a huge fan of the show from the beginning, but personally I thought, and I'm almost a minority of one on this, that the show kind of went off the rails at the end of Tehology a couple of weeks ago, and then further off the rails in Ozymandias last week. My big issue is kind of how important uh, Todd and the Nazis have become in the last chunk of episode. Ah, I have an issue with the Nazis as well, and I'm curious to see if uh, we're going to have an agreement on why. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is all spoilers. If people aren't fully caught up on Breaking Bad as they're they're listening to this, um, skip skip spoilers. about five minutes, folks. <laughs> yes, and so looking back at. at the great characters that the show had introduced in its first four seasons, especially in seasons three and four, where we really got to know Gus and Mike and uh, Teal Hector and the cousins and just a bunch of remarkable characters that the end of season four, where Gus, uh, or where I should say where Walt basically won in his battle against Gus, the show necessarily had to figure out something else for its final season. And, to take Walt on the next step and fully turn him into Scarface. And there's, I just don't necessarily think the show has been fully successful in doing that. I think Todd himself is a great character and I love the way that he was introduced with Vemino's Pest and then his, his polite nature um, seemingly at odds with his unbelievable violence. And then late, later with his crush on Lydia, I just thought that was a really fascinating direction to take the character. But the show has done really interesting things with violence in its first four seasons. And I just don't think the way that the show has done what it's done with the Nazis has been in any way as interesting or as powerful. And I, yes, I can see that it's definitely part of the point of what the show is doing in terms of Walt's now in a situation where he can't control it and bad violence is going to happen and he can't talk his way out of certain situations like with Hank at the beginning of Osmandius. But I just, it's not working for me narratively. Okay, and see, my problem with the Nazis, and I think it kind of dovetails with what you're saying, is that 
suddenly we've got an easy villain. Everybody can root against the neo-Nazis. I mean, they're the easiest villain there is. Gus was not that easy of a villain. So that, that, that's my problem with it. I, I am less, I'm having less of a problem than you are with that, but I am still having a small problem with the neo-Nazis suddenly being the big bad for the last couple episodes. That said, if Jesse Plemons didn't, isn't submitting Granite State as his Emmy nomination episode, his, he's a fool and his agent is a fool because he is totally brilliant in that episode. And that's all I have to say pending what the hell actually happens on Sunday, and I have no freaking real clue what's going to happen. For all I know, Carol the neighbor is going to play into it. If you don't introduce a Carol in the first act, act and not have Carol pay off in the final act. <laughs> I'm still laying money on everybody dying, because when we watched when we watched Walt and Flynn watch Scarface, that was a comment that was made. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, everybody dies in it. And, you know, given that Gilligan had said from the beginning, the, the show is, what is it? What was the teacher's? Mr. Chips Mr. becomes Chips. Scarface. Yeah. Then I'm like, okay, you, you've told me that this character is Mr. Chips becomes Scarface. And then you're showing that character watch Scarface and commenting that everybody dies. Hmm. My only problem uh-huh. with this comparison, I don't think Scarface is an especially good movie. So I don't really invite that comparison. Well, I think he was talking more about you know, as in being like a drug kingpin than being Scarface the movie. Yeah, fair enough. Scarface the character. Yeah. Anyway, we'll find out what happens on Sunday, and I'm sure we'll discuss it next time, or rant about it, whichever. Let's move on. Uh, What I've been enjoying is, since I am a Mac gamer, and I am a fifth-class citizen when it comes to the gaming community, I actually worked this out in my head today because I, I rather like that line. We're behind uh, in no particular order. PC gamers, Xbox gamers, PlayStation gamers, and Weeb gamers. <laughs> anyway, I have actually been finally getting around to uh, Bioshock Infinite, which I am enjoying as a new chapter in the Bioshock uh, games. I'm sorry, uh, have you, either of you ever played in the, any of the Bioshock games? Uh, remove Bioshock from that sentence and I can still say no. <laughs> okay. My gaming expertise goes back to the 80s and kind of stays in the 80s. Okie dokie. So, yeah. They're be- you can enjoy it, though, Joe. Certainly. They're beautiful, beautiful games that actually have wonderful plots. I've not played the second one uh, just because somebody warned me off that it was kind of a quick hack job. Um, they're, they're both involved in, in invading basically places where people have set up these mini communities based around their crazy ideas. The first one, based around objectivism, of all things. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The second one is a weird take on somebody who seceded from the U.S. with a floating city because he's one of those religious manifest liberty people from the late 19th century, and he still believes in all that. It's got more flag iconography than you can possibly imagine. It's fantastic, the setting up of it. Also, I like that uh, the main character now speaks, which was something that did not happen in the first game. Also, it's just a fun uh, first-person shooter at times, but a very clever puzzle game at at times as well. But since neither of you are gamers, we'll not continue the discussion that much further (laughs) on that. I have nothing to contribute to this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) I have as much to say on this subject as Randy does about beavers. (laughs) Zing! Anyway, moving on to our theme for the week. This week's theme is espionage, as chosen by me. 
We both chose a, pardon me, we chose a book and a movie. We're going to start with a movie as we usually do, and since Amy chose the movie, Amy, please tell us about The Debt from 2011. Well, when I set this up in the the previous episode, choosing it for you guys, I said that one of the reasons I chose it was because I felt like I wanted to go with the, you know, idea that I was picking something that I'd seen that you two hadn't. And you guys have seen a lot of spy movies. So, um, went with the debt just because I think it would give us, um, it would give us some interesting things to talk about. The basic setup of the debt is, well, first of all, it's an, um, let's say English language remake of an Israeli film, which if you happen to have Amazon Prime is available for free, it, you know, you can watch it through the Amazon Prime, the Israeli original. Uh, streaming? Yeah. Streaming through Amazon Prime. Yeah, I'm rather impressed by that. And your basic, the, the film is split into two halves and you have a half that's set in 1965 where you have three, and you guys have to tell me if I'm saying this correctly, Mossad? Close enough. Okay. Um, agents who are have gone to East Berlin, and their mission is to capture a Nazi war criminal. And it's the agents are two men and a woman, and they have this mission to, you know, they're, they're not there to kill him. They're there to capture him and force him to stand trial. Right, an analog for Adolf Eichmann being uh, kidnapped from Argentina in the 1960s. Then the, and, and let's just, before we get into the movie and we'll get into more detail, let's just say that, you know, that that whole operation plays out in the 60s. And then in 1995, so it jumps forward not to the present, but 30 years later, um... You have a book that's been written by the, one of the agent's daughters to actually to the agent's daughter to um, about how they did this. And we know from having seen the footage in 1965 that what this, you know, what the, what's been written in the book is not what actually happened. And so then the second half of the movie is those characters 30 years later dealing with the lie they've told and allowed to be publicized for 30 years. And what are they going to do about that now? Um, so that's the basic premise is that you have two, two narratives featuring the same characters 30 years apart and played by different actors and played by different actors. They didn't go through and age them, uh, you know, take young actors and age them or whatever. Um, I have some questions for us to discuss if we want to go that way. But first of all, I'll just ask you guys, um, what you thought of it. And I'm going to ask Randy first, because I know how Joseph felt. <laughs> I'm not sure you do, frankly. I think I know. So okay. tell me what you thought, Randy. I, during the first half of the movie, thought it was going into a different sort of morally murkier place than it ended up going. And I thought the movie sort of because of that was a bit less interesting than I thought it was going to be. Having said that, I would give it a marginal recommendation, primarily because of the cast, who I thought was pretty universally terrific, including surprisingly Sam Worthington. All right, so let's introduce the cast then. Um, in 1965, 
you have um, Stefan Gold, who is played by Martin Sokus, David Peretz, who is played by Sam Worthington, and Rachel Singer, played by Jessica Chastain. And if I may intercede here, Martin Sokus, for those of us in the nerd community, I can tell you exactly what he looks like if you haven't seen this movie. If you've seen The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, he is Galadriel's husband. Think of the pretty glowing uh, white, white-faced elf. You've got him. That's Martin Sokus. Aren't they all pretty glowing and white-faced? Yes, but he's very in particular, mostly because he's standing next to uh, Kate Blanchett the entire time. You kind of notice him. He's reflecting her. Okay, so <laughs> anyway. Um, and then in the 1995 timeline, you've got um, Helen Mirren, and Kieran Hines is the grown-up um, Steph- Martin Sokus, and no, Kieran Hines is Sam Worthington. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Kieran Hines is Sam Worthington, and Tom Wilkinson is Martin Sokus. So there you go. So can I uh, get into my slight casting yes. issues here? What did you think, <clears throat> Joe? Oh, overall, I like the movie a lot. I I, I actually really oh, okay. did enjoy it. Um, the, I thought there was some very good uh, spycraft stuff in there. The uh, the part where they're chasing him. Uh, the war criminal after he's almost escaped in a uh, in a train yard is very well constructed. Uh, there's some great stuff with them trying to figure out what to do with him as they're holed up in a, uh, in, a in a flat in 1965. Let's oh lord! <laughs> For all I know, Sam Worthington is a perfectly nice man. He delivers nothing to me as an actor. I I get nothing from him. It's not as bad as, uh, 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 oh, I'm blanking his name, uh, Freddie Prince Jr., <laughs> who just Whoa. sucks the charisma out of the room. Sam Worthington, I get nothing out of him, though. He doesn't deliver bad, doesn't deliver good, just there. I would have agreed with you based on his work in other movies, like that I'd seen, like, Clash of the Titans and Avatar and stuff like that, but I was actually, maybe I just found this story more interesting, but I thought he was an interesting presence here. Okay. And it could be because I'm watching him against Jessica Chastain and Martin Sokas, who I think deliver much better in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, this was... I think I saw this movie prior to really having any concept of who Jessica Chastain was. This was part of her big year in 2011. It was part of her big year, but I think it was the first of them I saw because I didn't see... Um, the Help, which I really liked her in, and Tree of Life, which I loved her in. Yes, though I have other problems with that movie. Until the following year, when you know during Oscar season. Sure. So this was, and I saw this in the theaters when it came out originally. So I saw this. This was the the first time that I really saw her in something and thought, "Wow, that woman is great." I think Tree of Life might have been my first real exposure to her. Um. Well, she'd been in, if I remember correctly, there was some chiclet thing that I'd seen that she was in, some rom-com, but I don't remember. But it was like one of those things where, yeah, she was in it, but she was such an interchangeable type character that it didn't really (laughs) matter. So I am looking at this, and according to this, I'm looking at IMDb for Sam Worthington, and this is the only thing I have ever seen him in. You haven't seen Avatar? You I did not see Avatar. I didn't see Terminator Salvation. I didn't see Clash of the Titan. Can I say I actually... I didn't see Man on a Ledge. I, I so, kind of want to say he's 
kind of effective in Terminator Salvation. And it's because he's a Terminator who doesn't know he's a Terminator. It kind of works. Well, anyway, so I hadn't seen him in anything. So, you know, I went into the debt with, you know, no preconceived notions about his acting ability. Certainly. But I will say that um, my overall reaction to the split narrative and the split cast was that I thought the younger actors had the more interesting narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other narrative had the better actors as a whole. I mean, Jessica Chastain is fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Kieran Hines, Tom Wilkinson, Helen Mirren together. I mean, you can't beat that. Oh, granted, we have, what, five minutes of Kieran Hines? <laughs> Spoiler! It's, it's enough. Also, let, 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 let's go back to my... This goes back into my casting thing here. Kieran Hines is not the older version of Sam Worthington. There's a lot of people that that feel that agree with you on that. <laughs> Karen Hines in, is in no way Eastern European Jewish either. Yeah, that that one was the the hard sell for me. Tom Wilkinson, I can I buy as German. Hines, but I could not. But well, and to me also, Tom Wilkinson is just Tom Wilkinson is so English it hurts. Tom Wilkinson is English down to his toes. Yeah, but I look him in this movie and think, yeah, I can totally buy that you uh, were that you were born in 1930s Poland or Germany or something. Jessica Chastain, totally bought it. Don't know why. I mean, she was born in Sacramento or something. Because she's Jessica Chastain and she is an absolutely incredible actress. That she is. And Helen Mirren totally bought that as well because uh, she's Russian, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. By ancestry, not that she was born there. Yeah. All right. So um, we've talked about the split cast. Um, let, me make, let me see what else it was that I wanted to bring up with you guys about... Can I bring up something for Jessica Chastain that actually ties into the uh, 1965 plot? Sure. The sheer chillingness of the way that they scout out and find this Nazi war criminal who was called the Surgeon of Birkenau because he conducted medical experiments at Birkenau uh, concentration camp. He is working as an obstetrician gynecologist in 1965 Berlin. And Rachel, the Jessica Jessica Chastain character, goes into his office and is examined by him under the pretext of trying to figure out why she hasn't gotten pregnant yet. That's chilling. Well, and that whole scene, I mean, just um, since neither of you boys have ever been through it, let me tell you how vulnerable you feel. Oh, absolutely. And you get that impression. Even when you're not a a, a Jewish secret agent being, you know, and the other, and the doctor isn't a, a former Nazi war criminal. You know, I love my OBGYN. It's still a vulnerable position. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Person and I, we get along really great. Um, you know, I love my, I love my gay male OBGYN. <laughs> and, and yet, it's still... Ugh. And, yeah, so I have to say, I think a lot of, of women watching that, watching the death, you know, it's like how guys cross their legs in certain movie scenes. I think a lot of women probably, like, tied their knees in a knot. He had that great line, something like, like, this is my hand and this is the speculum. Like, just, like, as he was beginning the examination. And it was just kind of one of those really kind of chilling moments. Okay, no pun intended, I guess. Actually, they do that. Like, 
the, okay, let me explain to you how this works. Well, you guys can't um, see what hap- what's happening, so they warn you ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm about to put this in you. So, Amy, why don't you tell us about what happens in the attempt to kidnap, to kidnap Dieter Vogel, who's the, uh, the Nazi war criminal that causes the moral confusion? Well, okay, so the problem is, is they are able to get him, extract him from his office. Um, by means of a, they, they fake him a heart attack. Um, they actually sedate him, but they tell his nurse it's a heart attack, and or she sedate, uh, Rachel sedates him, um, and the two guys come along as the ambulance, um, but just moments ahead of the actual ambulance, so they have to get out of there quickly. And they're in East Berlin. They've gone to a train station where they should be able to cross over into the west. And it all goes wrong. Um, there's details, but, you know, suffice to say here, it all goes wrong and they don't get to cross. And so now they're stuck with this guy as their prisoner in East Berlin. And they take him back to the flat that they've all three been sharing. And in the meantime, even though Rachel was originally attacked, attracted to David, the Sam Worthington character, um, right? Yeah. Yes. She she finds herself um she finds herself attracted to David, but he doesn't return her advances immediately and so she allows herself to be seduced by Stefan. Because she has taste. They end up in uh, becoming a couple and she actually uh it's a it's a interesting moment that happens that I'll let one of you guys bring up if you want. But um they have Vogel there in the apartment and um you know, it's a, it's a it's a sticky situation that they're in because the idea, their mission wasn't to bring him back dead or alive. The mission is to bring him back alive so that he can stand trial, so that he can be held accountable, so that the world can shame him essentially. And so they have to care for him, they have to feed him, and and he is a master manipulator and. Um, as you know, they're trying to be as civil and polite, polite to an extent. I mean, you know, let's just say they're looking at the Geneva Convention and this guy is, you know, was a war criminal, Nazi. He has no qualms. And so he starts torturing them from within his confinement. I thought it was effective when it came to Rachel, and I have a slight issue with that scene just because it, it's more effective with Rachel because uh, it's made clear at one point that this is her first field assignment. Uh, less effective with David because supposedly he's more of a hardened uh, field person, and yet he's the one that snaps when Vogel uh, taunts him with uh, supposed Jewish weakness and that they were easy to kill and starts slamming him over the head with a ceramic plate. Well, um, it is revealed at one point in the film that David lost all of his family to the Holocaust. Yes. And I don't think the same is true for Rachel. I mean, they may have lost some older members, but David apparently lost his entire family. Right. And I think and, I think the age also dies in there, if I can interrupt, just because um, this is 1965. All of them appear to be around 30, 35, I think is a fair guess. And, 20s and 30s, I would say. Yeah. So they were probably born 
Uh, just to get Chastain in real life, by the way, is 36, just for comparison purposes. Let's call her uh, early 30s in this movie. So probably born sometime in the mid to late 30s, so they remember World War II almost certainly. Right, but there's a difference between remembering it and losing your entire family. Exactly. And and I think that's supposed to be the motivation for David breaking. Um, to me, I think one of the really interesting scenes is when the doctor, you know, as a gynecologist, recognizes the symptoms of early pregnancy in Rachel. And Rachel has not divulged the news of her pregnancy to either of the men at that point. It's entirely possible she didn't know either at that point. Uh, things vary. Some women say they know immediately. So, you know, it's. It, I think it's somewhat ambiguous whether she knows or not. But I think as soon as he says it, she realizes, Yes. oh, that's what it is. And so, of course, you know, now he knows her secret. And that's another way for him to uh, antagonize and manipulate her. And then everything goes foobar when she goes to get some more dishes to put under the rain and he escapes. And here's where the morally ambiguous part starts. Now, in the beginning of the movie, we have seen a actually a book launch party where Rachel's daughter is uh, has been, written a book about her mother and uh, the other two gentlemen and their experiences in killing this Nazi war criminal when they were unable to stop him from escaping in 1965 Berlin. Unfortunately, this is all a lie, as we find out. He did not get killed when he was escaping. She attempted to she attempted to stop him escaping, but instead of being able to shoot him, he basically beats her and runs and takes off. And then they have to decide what the hell are we going to do? Our mission has completely failed. We're going to be shamed when we get back because we've completely foobarred this mission. There's no way we're going to be able to find Vogel. He's going to go to ground. So they decide instead of coming clean to say, "Well, we killed him, and then we dumped the body." And this is the lie they've been living with for many years. Um, and so then in the 1995 story, you know, you've got this book launch and it's David, right? That's guilt ridden about it. Yes. Stefan, yeah. Stefan, I get the impression, is still in the Mossad and has uh, risen up through the ranks through the years. So uh, David, when it comes to light that um, well, shortly after the book release party, um, David sees Stefan, and uh, and he's been escorted from his apartment by an Israeli government agent, and he commits suicide by stepping in front of a truck. And so now you're down to just um, Stefan and Rachel. And Rachel decides to... Okay, see, here's my problem with describing the second half of the movie. I wasn't, even though that's a fantastic, that's the stronger cast, I really wasn't interested in the present day um, story. I I have to agree. I mean, I, I love Helen Mirren. I will watch her and stuff with no question. But I was not that concerned with her trying to figure out, is Vogel still alive? Do I, do I tell the truth? Yada, yada, yada. I had to chuckle a few times during the uh the 1995 scenes like when she because then she she goes and conducts this her own little investigation in is it the ukraine yes is that where where he claims or where they a reporter has claimed to have found him in a hospital and so helen mirren's rachel goes to the uh 
goes to the Ukraine and just kind of snoops around in the newspaper office. Oh, the newspaper office scene is fantastic. I love that. In an ironic way? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I like that a lot. Her uh, to, her trying not to be found in a newspaper office where a couple of uh, of the newspaper workers have come back to fool around, obviously after a party or something. Sue me, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed the heck out of that scene. That I was just more concerned with the logistics of her actually getting into the office and the, the sort of the dark, empty newspaper office. I mean, I realize this was right around the cusp of the internet becoming big, but I'm sure there would still have been people on duty all night. Um, so I just, it was just a little fine for the, for the sake of the plot. Let's just let this go. And she got into the office to find out the details of the hospital and stuff like that. And so then she ends up going to the hospital from there. And the person, the reporter is saying was Vogel actually wasn't, but that oh can i can vogel, i can i tell it please 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 yes go ahead in a wonderful coincidence <laughs> vogel is one of the other patients and she sees him in a stairwell of all the hospitals in all of europe vogel is in the same one well now see i wrote that off as vogel had been had let his guard down and told the other inmate the stories and the yes. inmate other one was repeating them as his own fair enough i figured that's the only possible explanation <laughs> but it still bugged the hell out of me well and i mean you have a final confrontation between the two of them you know i think we're also used to helen mirren being just such a kick-ass that it was but even then a 50 year old woman should be able to take down an 80 year old man easier than that yes Especially, Especially a 50-some-year-old woman that, you know, had Israeli secret agent training. <laughs> and so, and also, like you say, the first part, I think, I think Randy, you said that, that there was some moral ambiguity in the first half uh, plot. But then, you know, the second one really just becomes, hey, let's hunt down some Nazis. You yeah, know. because where I thought the movie was going based on, on the premise and how they had set up the characters, I thought it was going into a similar place that Spielberg's Munich went in terms mm. of what is this revenge that we're doing? Is, is it, can, would it be better if we could just kind of let it go? Like how, how far can an eye for an eye take us? Like answer, or at least posing those kinds of questions. And of course, this is a different situation here because of course, bringing Nazi war criminals to justice is not something you're probably going to have any sort of moral debate about. Um, but I'd also thought that there would be a little more uncertainty over his identity. Um, right. like they, they established very easily, um, and without question that you mean in the current or in the first one in, in, in the, in the 1965 scenes, okay. that like there, there's no doubt that he is the guy they're looking for. I think that's pretty well established that she takes pictures of him while he's examining her. Exactly. Through a micro camera yeah. on a necklace, by the way, with a little detail that I liked. And they transmitted those back to Israel and did the identification there. I think it's pretty clear that they did the due diligence that it is him. Yes, for sure. But, of course, that's also then removing a level of ambiguity in terms of, like... Oh, I, I see what you mean. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So it just... And even in the, the 1995 scenes, they, they don't really deal with any sort of moral dilemma about... 
like the, the decision that they made in 1965 was from their perspective, and I probably agree with them, the right one uh, to say that they had killed him and disposed of the body because they were probably right that he would never resurface again. Mm -hmm. um, but even and in a way, having to hide as much as he would then have to hide would be punishment enough. Exactly. Yes. So, so it's, yeah, it's not really uh, any sort of really tricky moral situation that the characters could put into there. It didn't go the directions I was expecting it to go. So um, I think that pretty much wraps it up, unless either of you have anything else you want to say about it. I do have one other thing I'd like to say about this. In okay. Sort of movies like this where you have male and female colleagues. And in almost all cases where you have male and female colleagues working together. Oh, good. We're getting into something I wanted to talk about. Okay. <laughs> they end up screwing. Uh-huh. That's one it of happens my happens all the time in libraries. <laughs> you just don't even know. Yeah, same with computer programming. Mm-hmm. And okay. it's just yeah, it's 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 a pet peeve of mine and I'm gonna to have to make this a theme at some point, you know, where men and women can work together without fucking is going to be a theme at some point. Which is why I want to watch the original, which is by the way called uh Ha Hove, which apparently does not have the romance triangle. All right. We're we're veering off. Yes. Um, and 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 I would like to see that too as a uh, as a theme, Randy. The men and women working together without sex um, coming between them. And, and honestly, I kind of feel like this story either needed less or more of that. It would have been just as interesting a story without it, um, or it could have been a very interesting story um, if instead of you know, just flashing forward 30 years, we kind of see what happens to these characters because it was clear that Rachel and David still had feelings for one another, mm -hmm. even though she'd settled with Stefan. And eventually when she, you know, found out she was pregnant by him, of course she married Stefan. I think it would have been much more interesting to kind of see, I mean, if you're going to put the, the love triangle in there, I might have rather seen how that played out post-mission. I also wanted to see more of the part where they're talking to classes and lecturing about their being natural, uh, pardon me, national heroes now. I wanted to see their victory tour and see the moral ambiguity of how they deal with that. Something like Flags of Our Fathers. Now we're <laughs> going to move over to the book section. And Randy, your book, why don't you tell us about Codename Verity? Yeah, so although this book was uh, my pick for this podcast, uh, it was a book that I hadn't read before. And Joe, you hadn't read it either, but it was a book that uh, Amy has been really beating the drum for on Twitter and on Facebook and I'm sure in real life as well for, for a while now because... I made my book club read it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's a truly great book. Um, it's Codename Verity. Uh, at the very high level, it's the story about two young women in World War II. But, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. The book itself, it's about two young women, Julie and Maddie. And... In the book, Julie has been captured by the Germans in France. And the book is divided into two main parts. And the first part is, or at least appears to be, Julie's written confession to the Germans where she reveals what she knows about what the Allies are up to. And then the second part of the book is told from Maddie's perspective. 
And I guess we're going to have to talk about spoilers because we can't really talk about the book without talking about what happens in the book. Um, Maddie's a pilot. Julie's basically a spy. And it's really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) So, Joe, what'd you think? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I I had a horrible feeling of a plot twist that did not come. Essentially, um, the narrative for both parts, the first half and the second half, starts from the same place. Which is when, and then it's it's told through flashbacks. Um, it, it goes backwards in time with flashbacks in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, it proceeds on just a normal forward timeline. Um, so it's really interesting what she's doing with the structure there. I mean, if you, if you stop and think about it, you realize that Julie's story in, in the way she's telling it and Maddie's story in the way she's telling it begin at the same point, which is... Um, Maddie was supposed to drop Julie off in France for a mission. And, and for the World War II buffs, I'll mention this takes place in uh, February of 1944. The plane has gone down. The plane has... Um, and But Julie ejected before the plane crashed. Um, and Maddie went down with the plane. And from Julie's perspective, she thinks Maddie is dead. Um, and she's told by the Nazis, and they show her pictures of a body in the cockpit um, in Maddie's uniform, and so she thinks she's lost her best friend. Um, And the confession is going back and telling you how they became friends and, you know, various things that happened to each of them leading up to that last flight. Um. In Maddie's half, you you start and, and how much did you love it when you turned the page to the second half and you realized it was now Maddie's story and you went, She's alive! Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I was just so happy. I turned it like, Oh my gosh, she didn't know me. Um and so Maddie uh was she did go down with the plane, but she wasn't killed. Uh, but the other intelligence people that were there, the other British intelligence people that were there to greet her plane found, um, what did they, who did they use? Did they use a... Oh, they used a German, uh, a German guy who was a German soldier who was just on a random patrol on a bicycle and was writing down details. They they shot him and used him as the, uh, as the fake pilot. And, and they put him in there so that way, because if there was no pilot found with the plane, then you have a problem. But if you find a dead pilot, you're good. Right, and they and put him in Maddie, in Maddie's clothes, arranged, you know, just enough. Right. Obviously, he didn't fit, but they arranged like it they enough. Had to, they had to slit the pants to get him on him and that kind of thing. Which is a great detail, by the way. So then she has to go into hiding, just to kind of give away some of the plot here. Um, she goes into hiding, and now the story becomes about how do you extract Maddie from France. And ideally, how do you also get Julie out of the prison and mm. back to England. Julie, who at the same time is basically writing out her confession, giving all sorts of details about wireless codes and wireless sets and locations of airfields to the Gestapo. And she writes about that, like how she gave up all this stuff for a blanket. There's a wonderful quote that I love. It's like on page one or two or something. It's wonderful. Um the warmth and dignity of my flannel skirt and woolly sweater are worth far more to me now than patriotism or integrity. 
Oh, that's exactly the one that I thought you were going to say. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then there's another one later where she says it even, even more wonderfully. They devise a plan. They know the prisoners are going to be transported. And so Julie, I mean, Maddie and the other intelligence officers devise a plan to try and overtake the guards and, you know, capture the prisoners for themselves. And it goes wrong. And we yeah. should mention Julie is not just being transported. She's being transported to, to uh, I forget the name of the exact camp, but an experimentation camp. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not going to be pleasant. It goes wrong. And in a moment that just took my breath away, Julie uses a phrase that lets Maddie know that Maddie should shoot her. And she does. What really struck me about that moment was that there was still about a third of the book left. And I'm like, well, where do you go from here? What happens next? What happens next is that one of the guards, a female guard that when you've read Julie's section is mentioned, Anna Engel, um, when you read her section, you hear her talk about Anna Engel all the time. Anna smuggles out the confession and you find out that all along, Julie was putting in details that Anna then highlighted before passing along as to how they could take down the prison. Because Anna is not German military. She's described as uh, by, uh, by Maddie as actually a German, basically a slave. She'd been a scientist. Yes, a chemist. Um, so she was a civilian that was basically drafted into the war effort. She was not career military by any means. And they mentioned that at one point she had been at the University of Chicago. A nice little detail. So that becomes the rest of the plot is trying to take down the take down the prison. It's a wonderful jigsaw of a novel. It was one of those rare things that held together when you read it again. Because the first time I read it, I was just so invested in what would happen. What would happen to these characters? <laughs> you know, I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention. And so then when I was reading it so that I could discuss it with my book club, I you know, could read it more slowly, could pay more attention, wasn't as concerned with the plot, and could see how everything held together so wonderfully between the two halves. Oh, the construction of it is fantastic. And I especially, you mentioned uh, Anna Engel, and I think the key in that construction in tying the two parts together is Anna Engel, who becomes one of the most important persons in the book by the end. Which I find fascinating because in the confession, which is written to be read by all the German soldiers, by the uh, German uh, officers, Anna Engel is kind of a monster, kind of a surly, never doing anything nice for her monster. But you realize the the actual situation is much more complex and that Anna Engel is a much more interesting character. And I think she's the linchpin of tying those two narratives together. And it's fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I would so read another novel by Ween about Anna Engel, how she ended up <laughs> 1930s chemist at the University of Chicago and ended up working for the Gestapo. So what did you think, Randy? Um, I can see how a second reading of the book would be more rewarding than a first reading would be. Um, because to, under, to properly understand the first half of the book, which is Matt, or Julie's confession, 
you really have to understand what Maddie writes about in the second half of the book to see how those puzzle pieces fit together. Oh, yes. So while I was reading it, the first half, I'm like, okay, I, I can see how this is a bigger picture, and I'm getting clues and hints about that what might actually be going on is, one, not what Julie is actually writing, and two, not what Julie is actually aware is going on. Uh, like the interview with, um, what's her name, the, the American reporter. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely tell that something was hinky with the American reporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, as I continued reading it, the more I got into it, the later the book went, which is a great thing to have because then it just becomes a, a page-turner that you can't put down. Yes. But I can also see that it would be, I would find the first half more rewarding now that I know what happens in the second half. And and I will say that actually that on the second read, I found the first half um, more interesting than the mm-hmm. second half because the second half, like I said, is very straightforward, um, you know, just a plot. But especially if you go back and read it again and you read the first half, you realize how much is being set up in the first half that you don't even realize is a setup. Exactly. Yeah. And then it clicks into place as you're reading the second half. Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things that a lot of people in my book club didn't notice was that because they didn't remember it because it's a story that's not told. It's like, you know, in the movie, there would have been dramatic lighting and there would have been music to tip you <laughs> off that this is an important story. But in the book, it just looks like any other, you know, she's written it just like anything else. And it's a story about one of Julie's, I think it's a aunt or great aunt who um, killed her husband but killed her husband because he was suffering and asked her to do it and shot him. And there's a, let me, let me, let me flip through and see if I can find it. Page 77. Yeah. Thanks Joe. In this narrative, Queenie is Julie and they've been talking about, there's been a running thing of what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are your fears? And, Maddie says, you know, not doing my job properly, failing to live up to expectations. A bit like my fear of killing someone, Queenie said, but less specific. It could include killing someone, said Maddie. It could, Queenie was sober now, unless you were doing them a favor by killing them. Then you'd let them down if you didn't, if you couldn't make yourself. My great uncle had horrible cancers in his throat, and he'd been to America twice to have the tumors taken out, and they kept coming back. And finally, he asked his wife to kill him, and she did. She wasn't charged with anything. It was recorded as a shooting accident, believe it or not. But she was my grandmother's sister, and we all know the truth. How horrible, Maddie said, with feeling. How terrible for her. But yes, you'd have to live with that selfishness afterward if you couldn't make yourself do it. Yes, I'm dead afraid of that. And like I said, it's just stuck in there. You know, like to me, I mean, you know, I... You know, as I read it, I thought that's an affecting story, but it happened so much before that there was so much other stuff that happened until the moment when that was what Julie asked Maddie to do for her that I'd forgotten the story by that point. But then on a reread, it was just like chills went up and down my arm when I read that original story. But then we get into something that I am curious, Randy, to hear you first. 
<laughs> do you think it's too much of a coincidence that we later meet the same great aunt and it's not by means of introduction through Queenie slash Julie? We just happen to meet the great aunt who is helping out the resistance. I went with it. But I was, yeah, I, I can see uh, the concerns you would have with that. It didn't bother me for some reason, and normally that type of thing would. Maybe it's because I was just so completely enthralled with the book that I just kind of didn't contextualize that in that way. I think it I think it kind of didn't bother me that much just because I mean there was mention made of it before they even flew there that she was living in that area. That yeah, that oh that's where my great aunt lives and has lived and she wasn't able to move back before the war and so now she's stuck there. Certainly. I, I honestly and had no real problems with it myself. If they hadn't mentioned it ahead of time and it, you just happened to discover it, I might not have liked that. Um but then it also gives you that wonderful moment where they go and they reclaim Julie's body and she's buried on the ground. And it's I felt like it was unclear whether or not the aunt knew that that was her great niece. I think she didn't. Yeah, I don't think she did. But, you know, Maddie knows. Yes. And... And there's that wonderful description of the roses, and oh my god, I was already crying, and then that just made me cry harder. <laughs> oh, it's a lovely novel, and I can't wait to read it again at some point. Uh, there's apparently a sequel, by the way, which I didn't know until tonight. Which I own, but I haven't started reading yet. <laughs> la -di -da -di -da, and it has a much better cover. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about it. It's, good. it's a sequel with Maddie, and I have to say, one of the reasons that I was originally drawn to this book is that I love um, the whole story, you know, nonfiction story of women pilots in World War II. And I'm going to tell a slightly embarrassing story about myself, but I had no idea of that segment of history until I read a completely cheesy, trashy romance book by Judith Krantz. That was set that had a World War II female pilot in it. And of course, you know, I don't take the Krantz thing as historical, but it made me go look it up to see wait a minute, did they really have, you know, you know, she's written this, did she just make that up, or did they really have women pilots in World War II? And so, you know, I, little kid went to the, not little kid, middle schooler goes to the library and looks that up. And I've been fascinated with the topic ever since. So I, I just thought that, I mean, you know, as soon as I heard, you know, young female pilot World War II, I'm like, okay, give it to me. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> and and I'm so glad that I read it because it's just one of the best books I've read in the last few years. Um, let's talk about, um, Joe, do I get yes. to talk now about, have we, anything more to say on Codename Verity? Uh, not unless you'd like to go into the discussion of the covers. Uh, I think we can skip that. We've run long. Yes, folks, I'll put up a blog, into, a blog on the blog. I'll put up a bit about the different covers of this and why the American hardcover really annoys us. All right. So do I get to tell what we're doing for next time? Absolutely. You are uh, picking the... Uh... Yes. Yes. 
I just have one more thing about Coding Verity that I, when I reached for my iPad made me think of it. Um, because I bought it as an ebook rather than an actual physical book, I think the pages are different. So um, my code name, Verity, has like 400 pages, which I wow. think is longer than the actual printed book. Yeah, I've at, uh, I have 341, and that's including the bibliography. So then when I turn it sideways, then I get 760 pages. But... <laughs> Reading it as, you know, uh, a portrait uh, orientation, um, it has 400 pages. And the interesting thing about the page divisions is at the end of the, the chapter where um, Maddie shoots Julie, um, right at the bottom of the page, you get, the, the, you get Julie's line to Maddie and then um, turn her face away from me to make it easier. Then you flip the page, and the first line is, and I shot her. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. So I it was like, if it's that way in the print book or not. It was a complete shock to me, because often if I'm reading, like, an actual physical book, in addition to reading, I'll just be kind of, like, scanning the pages. So I might have caught that sentence before I actually read it. <laughs> no, it's, it's just part of the, it's not on a new page. Yeah, it was just the, the way the, page, the pagination worked out in the, uh, the e-book, but it was just, it floored me because, yeah, I, I, it was just right there at the top of the page. <laughs> okay, so I asked Joe and I have asked Joe and Randy to um, give me things that fit the theme equilateral love triangle. An interesting now, distinction. Uh, hold on. We'll go into what that means and some examples of non-equilateral love triangles. I think we'll save that for the next podcast. But a brief description now is an equilateral love triangle is a story in which you have a protagonist and two love interests. And the love interests are relatively equal. And not just from, like, that's my opinion, that's your opinion kind of way but from a, a storytelling and construction way that, you know, uh, both a men are presented as equally appealing to both the protagonist and to the reader or watcher. So what'd you guys pick for me? Randy, you've got the movie, so please go ahead. So I, I chose uh, the 2011 Sarah Polly movie, Take This Waltz. Um, I think I'll be curious to see how we view the love triangle as it's presented relative to the theme of it being equilateral. Um, so in Take This Waltz, uh, the three points of the triangle are played by Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen and Luke Kirby. And to me, I, I think it's a, a more interesting movie than it is a great movie. I think it's a completely fascinating movie to watch and I'm sure we'll have an interesting discussion about it. And uh, I just, yeah, I, and plus it's Canadian. So I had to represent that. <laughs> um, I have to say, going into it, um, I am already worried about its equilateralness because I can't stand Seth Rogen. I but will we'll definitely see. be curious to get your impression on him here because this is, in a lot of ways, unlike anything he has ever done. Well, now, did you see 50-50? Oh, no, I did not. Okay, I will say I found him tolerable in 50-50, which is leaps and bounds ahead of where I usually find him. So, I liked his acting work in, uh, in uh, This is the End this year. 
I which, didn't see that. Which did not require a huge amount of acting, but got acting far better than the movie uh, you would think it would call for. I, I actually think it's a very, very well done movie. Jay Baruchel, of all people, is very good in it. All right. So, Joe, what'd you pick? Here's the point where I tick off Amy. <laughs> I chose 2002's Spider-Man Blue. This actually is an equilateral, equilateral love triangle because it's one of the most famous love triangles in comics history. It's Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, and Mary Jane Watson. I'm not going to say anything else about how it goes since then, but it's not a punchy, punchy book. Well, I can tell you, finally came in for me today with Interlibrary Loan, and I've read the first few pages, and I'm already quibbling, Joseph Finn, so <laughs> get ready for the next... We may actually have a podcast where we don't all agree on something. Hey, it works for me. I think uh, I think you will be pleasantly surprised by the end of it, because this is a six-issue collected into a total book. And for I those have to of say, us, the copy I got is like it, it has been much loved by the people that have read it before me. <laughs> but not in and a so when you way. say two thousand, not in a bad way. Um, <laughs> but when you say so when you said two thousand two, I'm like, oh well, that explains it. You know, any yes. book that's been in a public library for ten years has seen some abuse. I will say for the uh, people following along, it's uh, written by Jeff Loeb and uh, art by Tim Sale, who I always find fascinating as a comic artist simply because he's colorblind. Huh. Um, Randy, I have one question for you before we wrap up yeah. uh, regarding Take This Waltz. Um, as I previously mentioned, I will be hosting a 16-year-old in my house. Uh-huh. Um, would there be? Would it be inappropriate for her to watch it with me? Uh, it's definitely rated R. There is nudity in it. There is at least one uh, montage of sex scenes. Okay. That I believe has definitely female and I think also male nudity. I mean... Oh, wait, I just remembered uh, Sarah Silverman talking about this movie. There's a lot of nudity. Yes. Yes. (laughs) She's German, so... You know, in that kind of European way, I figure, you know, sex may not be, you know, depictions of sex may not be an issue, but at the same but time, I don't want to expose you to anything that's disturbing. It's, uh, yeah, it could be, hmm, depending how mature she is for a 16-year-old. I mean, I think 16-year-olds today are a lot more mature than I was 20 years ago, or 23 years ago now at 16, so... uh it's it's definitely an R-rated movie, and there is lots of nudity, and it's it's about messy adult relationships. Nice. Uh, where is it set, actually? Uh, Toronto. Oh, nice. And there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, yes. So you mean you guys are giving? I ask you. I give you guys a perfectly reasonable request, and I'm getting Canada and comic books. I'm giving you 1960s Marvel New York, one of the greatest places in fiction. Canada and comic books. Sarah Pauly, come on. Peter Parker. And comic books. Another thing to to, uh, just keep in mind when you're watching Take This Waltz is the concept of the female gaze in terms of, because it was written and directed by a woman, um, is is the, the whole concept of nudity kind of portrayed differently? 
which is something that kind of, when I watched it last year, it was something that just kind of popped into my head while I was watching. But I, I don't think it's necessarily as good as Polly's other two movies that she has directed. I mean, Stories We Tell is an absolute masterpiece. Um, and Away From Her is also amazing as well. But this is a far... It's a messier movie and also a very interesting one, and I do hope you both like it. Good. And if I may recommend a Michelle Williams movie that nobody saw, uh, it should be on Netflix streaming, uh, Meek's Cutoff. That has been on my list to watch for a That's long a winter time. bottom, isn't it? Uh, I think maybe no, it no, is. No, no, it's, uh, no sorry. It's, it's Kelly Reichardt. I'm getting it confused with uh, another one he did that was shut out west. Yeah, this is a uh, also a female director, Kelly Reichardt. You know how I feel about westerns. <laughs> this is a completely different movie. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm impressed you guys didn't find a way to make me deal with a western. So, so I think our ideal movie for Amy is going to be an apocalyptic western musical. Oh, so Actually, that uh, I would probably enjoy. <laughs> so, paint your wagon. <laughs> or or uh, Cannibal the Musical. Yeah, now we're talking. Ah, it's the... Uh, gonna paint your wagon, <laughs> gonna paint it fine, gonna use oil-based paint hey, because hey, the hey, wood hey. is pine. Hey, hey. <laughs> I'll start yes. singing beavers again. So anyway, I think it's time for us to wrap up for this week. Does anybody right. have any closing thoughts? Obviously, I think we're mildly recommending the debt. Unless I'm anybody very is mildly recommending it, yeah, I think you guys would recommend it strong, more strongly than I would. Probably yes. Amy, any you're you're on the good side on that one. I, I mean, I think um, it's worth seeing for Chastain's performance alone. Oh, definitely, um, yes. You know, but I wouldn't feel the need to rush out for it. You know, it's yes. one of those if you see that it shows up on whatever streaming service you subscribe to or on some premium channel that you pay for, you know, watch it then. Yeah. And it, and it is a good enough movie that I'm curious to see the uh, Israeli version and see what that's like. So the book we're obviously all completely on board with. Yes. Okay, good. Thank you, Amy, for making me read it. Absolutely, uh, Amy. Thank you very much. So in two weeks, we'll be back with Equilateral Love Triangles. The movie is going to be Take This Waltz from uh, 2011, Randy? Yes. Thank you. And 2002 Spider-Man Blue, which is written by Jeff Loeb. That's J-E-P-H-L-O-E-B. And illustrated by the great Tim Sale, which, by the way, you guys uh, have probably seen one or two episodes of Heroes at some point. Yeah. yeah. I saw the first season. Okay. You know the uh, guy who was uh, drawing the apocalyptic paintings? Yeah. That's all Tim Sale artwork. Oh, cool. Yeah. Siler. Yes, exactly. Not Skyler, Siler. I said Siler. I know, but I, I always want to call him Skyler for some reason, but I think that's a no. villain in something else. Now, that yeah. would have made Breaking yeah. Bad a lot more interesting. For the record, I'm absolutely pro Skyler White. Um, oh, yes. Oh, me too, but I'm just thinking, yes. can you imagine if she could have, like, sliced off the top of Walt's head with a glance? <laughs> No, no, Siler, that's right. No, Siler wasn't the painter. He wasn't? No, Siler stole his powers. Zachary Quinto's character stole his powers. The uh, painter was somebody else. He was the guy in, like, the oh, very first... Oh, he was the hippie, ratty, Lenny Kravitz dude. Yes, yes. Okay. Anyway, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, you can find <laughs> you can find me on the interwebs uh, at... I am on Twitter at Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H, F as in Frank, I-N-N. -N. 
Amy, where can people find you? Amy Watts on Twitter. And um, again, also at the Baltimore Sun, recapping Dancing with the Stars. And, and we'll have links we'll have to that. The... Starting next week, The Vampire Diaries. Very nice. And we'll have links to that for the uh, at the website as well. Randy, where can folks find people? Where can people find you? Canada. I think Randy might have dropped off. People can't find Randy. Ah, uh, well, Randy can be found at at r a n d o i s. That's Randois on Twitter. You can find our website at tryandlikeit.blogspot.com. That's try and like it. And we'll be back in two weeks with Equilateral Triangles. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.